You're listening to the Farming Fix podcast, the podcast where I, Martin Cavanagh, speak to innovative farming people about what's new in the ever-changing industry. This week, I speak to farmer and vet surgeon Gillian O'Sullivan. We chat about farm stewardship and the importance of the farmer's role in managing our natural resources. So today we have Gillian O'Sullivan. Gillian is a vet surgeon. She's a holder of the grad cert in Dairy Heart Health. She was or is, I don't know what the right expression, Zurich, farming independent, farmer of the year with her husband, Neil, in 2018. She's also chair of the Vista Milk Industry Advisory Committee, an ag journalist. And I'm going to throw this in for crack. She's an opinion leader. Sometimes, is, is that a reasonable description of you, Gillian? Or am I over-egging it? Am I over-gilding the lily? Uh, as I sit here in my uh, in my sitting room, I don't know who that person is, to be honest. But uh... <laughs> it's definitely no, for no. you. It's definitely for you. I, I guess I'm I'm a bit of everything. Yeah, that would be me. So your journey from a vet student and looking at your backstory a little bit, you qualified as a vet and you worked in veterinary practice for a period of time. And I think maybe I'm wrong, but you worked in small animal practice for a period in Dublin, and then you ended up on the farm. What has got you to where you are now? Yeah, I guess, I mean, my background is that I'm one of four kids. I'm number three there in the line and grew up in a farm. And my older brother, who was always interested in farming, and ever since the vet arrived on the farm to do a C-section, I remember that's exactly what I wanted to do. So that got me into vet school up in UCD. And when I came out, then I was in small animal practice in Bray with um, Bray Vet, which is a clinic with, I don't know if you know, Pete Wedderburn. He's mm-hmm. um, Pete the Vet, he's known as in the media. And it was great and I really enjoyed it. But unfortunately, in 2008, then my brother, who was farming with my father at home, he passed away suddenly. And I guess we were kind of just dumbstruck, really, as, as, as to what we were to do. And from there on, I guess I'd only just started going out with, Neil, who's my husband now, but both of us were vets up in Dublin. And I guess we, we took a leap of faith the following year and we decided to give up our jobs and to come home and learn the basics of farming. And like as you talk about, you know, Farming 101, that was where we were at. Our knowledge mm. of farming was, you know, we had a high knowledge of base around animal health, but on the day-to-day running of a dairy farm system, our knowledge was, you know, at zero. So that's really how we got into farming. And when we came down, we said we'd give it two years because we've either know after two years whether we loved it or hated it and it's 2021 now so we're 11 12 years later and we're here and we love it and you know we wouldn't dream of doing anything else but um you know we've been very fortunate in how things have turned out for us I guess despite you know what happened with my brother things have turned around and we've come back stronger basically as a family but yeah that was a a pivotal and awfully sad time when my brother Vinny passed away and unfortunately, life often pivots on these moments in life. And it's terrible to say that often these are really tragic moments that create a situation where a family pivots. But you pivoted in a particular direction. And I read from your articles that you've written for both Farmers Weekly, um, the Farming Independent and so on. You have a great sense of place, sense of land, sense of farm. And I'm using a term, we talked about it earlier, uh, of farming stewardship. Does that term capture anything? Is that helpful as a term, is that something that you can relate to sustainability, that magic word that we're all using at the moment? Yeah, I would definitely prefer the word stewardship over sustainability because mm. sustainability is it's been overused to a degree now that it just has become almost meaningless. You know, on the other hand, stewardship means to take care of something. And you know, when you think of farming stewardship, you know, we can't take the land with us to our graves. The land is ours for just a period of time. 
and the land will be our our legacy when we're gone. Mm. And I guess if you think about stewardship in those terms, you know, what would you want your legacy to be? Well, if you think about it in that sense, that when the next generation or whoever it is that comes along to take over the farm when we're long gone, you know, I'd be really ashamed to think that we would pass it on in a state that was worse than when we got it. So, and broadly, I guess myself and Neil, we would see the farm as kind of three elements when you're speaking in terms of sustainability or stewardship. And the first would be the farmer, and the second would be our cows or our livestock, and the third would then would be our natural resources that are on the farm, which would be your air, your soil, your water, and your biodiversity. And, you know, for us, the idea would be to create a farm system where all of those three elements work together. And in that sense, then nothing is left behind. And, you know, for ourselves, like you can't leave any of those elements behind because each of those, they're critical to a farm being sustainable into the future. So, you know, when you look at those three elements, a farmer, you know, in order to be sustainable, has to be having a decent work-life balance and producing an income for their farm. You know, when you look at your cows, they have to be adapted to your particular farm system. They have to be productive, healthy. And when you look at your natural resources, then I think we have to see how our farm can preserve or improve them as we go on. And that's probably something, an area that we're becoming a lot more maybe in tune with here in the last couple of years. So when it comes to, you know, biodiversity, we roughly mapped our farm last year and we figured out that we have between seven and eight percent of habitat cover on the farm. And in the last three years, we've planted maybe over 300 hedge plants and we've already for next spring another thousand hedge plants to go into the farm. So we're always in that area of of natural resources. Um, We're always looking to benchmark ourselves and improve on that. And, you know, so that what we have when you know when we when we finish up farming, whatever that may be, that what's left behind is better. Okay, and 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 I think if 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 we look back into the annals of time and history around farms, there was probably a natural, uh, and I use the term in a different way. There was natural organic sense within farmers that these things were combined. They had their life on farm. They had to took that for their animals. They and they had to look after soil and so on to maintain the product uh, to to retain productivity. But we ended up then, I suppose, in a scientific period where some of the control of those things came out of our hands and we replaced them with other technologies. But now we're being asked by regulation and demand, both from climate action, pollution action, to reinvest in these things. So if, if we look at that, maybe farmers are, are put into a negative position because now we're being asked to regulate something that we probably did before in a very, very natural sense. For instance, a lot of people, you know, we talk about this, this concept of nitrate and nitrates. What is that? If to a non-farmer, what does that mean? What, if, if we could explain that in simple terms, Julie. I guess, yeah, that there's a lot of talk about the, what's probably known as better is the nitrates directive. Um, so the nitrates directive came from EU level. And in the early 90s, it was around Europe. You were seeing an increase in stock numbers an increase in maybe fertilizer usage, so a, a degree of intensification. And what was seen was that um, intensification was having an impact on water quality. And at EU level, then there was a limit set on, um, on we'd say, the level of intensification or the level of, of you know, stocking or, or fertilizer usage. And they were set for all EU member, member states and under the framework of the nitrates directive. And that in, the whole of that was around water quality. So that's what the whole, the, the, all of the nitrates directive is, you know, that's what the focus of it all is. And then when we take that a step further, what we hear a lot about in Ireland is the, is the, the nitrates derogation. 
So what the derogation is, is that if you can prove that stocking farms above this, you know, this, this EU level that they have set, um, if, if you can prove that that doesn't impact on water quality, then you can apply for a derogation for your country and in, individual farmers can apply for this derogation and they can stock their farms that little bit higher. So there's about maybe 7,000 farms, mostly dairy farmers in Ireland, that have uh, a derogation on their farms for stocking that little bit higher. So being in derogation, those farmers, again, all these nitrates um, regulations and that they're all around protecting water quality. So there are certain things then that, that each farmers are, have to do. So, I mean, I, just to give a couple of examples, derogation farmers have to use, spread, sorry, using low emission slurry spreading. Derogation farmers have to manage runoff of waterways to prevent it going directly into water courses. Um, you know, animals have to be excluded from water courses and, and not have access there. Or even there's a couple of new ones around environmental training courses and uh, moving water tanks or water trucks away from water courses so that they're, you know, they're at least 50 metres from water course. And then these things have been reviewed and updated on, on a more regular basis now, because basically since around 2015, the trends in water quality have, um, and in terms of nitrogen losses, they've been declining. So as in, we're, we're seeing greater amounts of nitrogen losses to our waterways and uh, agriculture is playing a role in that. Um, so the reason why nitrates is in the news and in, 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 uh, of late is that a lot of these changes are, are coming quite quickly and we're seeing more of the changes brought in on an annual or, you know, or, or, or every second year. Um, and so it, there's been proposals in the previous month, again, around newer measures and newer nitrates proposals for the, the, the next couple of years. Um, and that's why there's been a lot of debate about it, because some of these proposals are about changing slurry spreading dates from we'll say our last date would have been the middle of October and moving that back to September. So all of these things will impact on farms and how we manage slurry storage. But, you know, I think that we have to be very aware that Farmers, you know, agriculture has a part to play in, in, in water quality. Uh, when it comes to nutrient losses, we're seeing 50% of nutrient losses happening in, the, in, in this, what we call the closed period. So the period when there's meant to be no spreading of slurry ongoing. And if that is happening, I mean, you know, the obvious thing is, is, is why is that happening? It's probably because there's a degree of, of slurry spreading going on when it shouldn't be. So we have to, you know, I think we have to probably... Um, take note of those things and, you know, on an individual basis and probably encourage better behavior around our approach with to, to how we use nitrogen. Okay, so, I mean, when we're looking at this, we're looking at a, a situation where our, our ag industry has, a, has expanded and grown. We are a huge amount of exports. It's a very, very valued part of our, of our, of our economy. And the trade-off is at what point do we uh, reinvest in the balance between our output and agriculture, how we're doing that, and what our ultimate long-term impact is going to be on that environment. So we're in this situation, we're back into this whole concept of responsibility and stewardship at the individual level, but regulated mm -hmm. from, from, from a central area. How, how do we balance that, Gillian? I mean, the, the farmer, as, you know, as part of their sustainability, they must, make, they must have a, a good quality of life. Things are getting a lot more expensive. How do we balance that demand of stewardship in there? Have you have you opinions on that? Well, I, I I guess that's the thing. Nobody likes to be told what to do. And when you're, you know, when, when you're farming and you're, you know, you, you like to feel like you have control over what you're doing. But of course, we're all operating within quite a, a, 
tightly regulated framework for anything that we're doing on a farm. And um, I guess at the moment, you're kind of at, at, at a crossroads where you have this new CAP proposals, there is new agri-environment schemes, there are newer, um, again, as I said, the nitrous proposals. And it seems like there's just, that there's a, a, a storm of change coming towards farmers. And that can be frightening because change isn't, you know, everybody has, uh, some people don't welcome change, some people love it. Um, but I think that when it comes to uh, making the right decisions around um, things like nitrates. I, I think I think there's probably an awareness and there's of, of the impact of some of the things that happen on farms on our local environments. And we probably need to um, we probably need to be, you know once once we once we're open to that, and we can see why we're doing some of these measures. Then hopefully farmers will. And I, I think even in the last 12 months, you know, farmers have really really stood up to to the challenges and you can see even within within our my own discussion group like farmers are really really trying very hard to implement change especially around how they use nitrogen um so i think that the, that farmers there's a definitely a willingness there but also there's there's that that reluctance to change and there's also that you know so there's a little bit of a hurdle to overcome but i think there's you know once we get everybody on board i think that there's you know there's we can definitely um get positive change within the within our agricultural uh, communities and that in terms of the environment. Yeah, I'm, I'm hugely encouraged, Gillian. I've spoken to a couple of what I would call um, uh, intensive dairy farmers lately. And it's interesting that all of them, all of them have said that the current status quo with nitrates in terms of water quality is not, is not a sustainable defensible position. And it's, it's totally accepted. I think what, what a lot of farmers struggle with is, is, this, is the speed of the requirement to change what you're doing in what I would regard as being a slow business. Farming is a, is a slow process. It's a long game. And we're asked to change things very, very dramatically. As farmers and people involved in agriculture, how good are we to communicate with our, with our non-farming brothers and sisters, with our, with our non-farming consumers who have a view of us or a view of agriculture? Are we guilty of talking to ourselves too much? Is there a better way of doing this? What do you think? Yeah, I think you're you're right there in saying that the changes have come quickly. It's when you consider that the, uh, you know, it was basically 10 years of ramping up, you know, expand, expand, expand. Policy is helping you expand. You know, every meeting you go to, you're told to expand. And that that peer pressure and that the whole collective that that is in, that in, got the industry to 2015 where quotas were gone. And then we had this, you know, that big burst of everything uh, of, of expansion. And then all of a sudden there is a handbrake turn being made at just, you know, the, as you said, the pace of this, that's difficult to, to deal with when you're told one message for 10 years, but then in a very short space of time, you're told completely the other. So, um, and in terms of, of, you were talking about communication and, and, um, maybe farmers use it, losing that link with uh, with consumers. Oh, I, I couldn't agree more. I think that that um, when you look at how farming is communicated to consumers, it, like that image of the cow eating grass is like it's nearly immortal at this stage, and and it's it's around so long. And I think that that image is as again just like the word sustainability, it's almost meaningless to consumers because that's what they see on an ongoing basis. And I think we need to. Um, come up with probably more meaningful ways of engaging with with consumers, um, and and you could see farmers engaging that in terms of in terms of FaceTime farmer. There's, that's a new initiative through 
airfield estate this year where farmers are getting to speak to, to primary school students and, and to show them what they're doing on farms. And even in our own experience here with Dungarvan, which is our local town here, they have a food festival every April. And over the last couple of years, we've taken a, they do a food tour. So they bring out um, kids and their parents out to the farm and they, they get the opportunity to see here where the cows are grazing, where the milking parlor is. And we've we generated a calf there that the kids can feed. So we took it on and, and um, you had parents coming in and they actually had never been on a farm before, even though like Dungarvan is a very, you know, it's, it's, it's a town that's, that's surrounded by, by farming and agriculture. Like some of them hadn't even ever been close to, to a cow or a calf before. And I just found that astounding. And what turned up in the conversations we had there was that those parents were taking the opportunity to ask the questions that were maybe that they found troubling or that they found were they'd issues with. And, you know, they ask about, about where, you know, what we were doing with our beef calves and things like that. And I, you know, we got the opportunity to explain to them that, you know, there was a huge proportion of our calves that are born here are actually beef calves. It'd be over 50% of the calves we'd use beef AI on. And that those calves were, were going to a, a beef calf rarer. And uh, they were thinking, you know, they were kind of, uh, they, they got to ask the questions, they got to get it off their chest, they got to see where, uh, how this farm system actually worked. And it was, it was brilliant. And, and it, as I said, it was a very, very meaningful uh, way of communicating with them. And, and for me afterwards, uh, I was in a car park in Dungarvan, I was doing a bit of shopping and someone ran over to me and said, you know what, my husband was on your farm with our kids last week and they had a fantastic day. It, it just, you know, it, it brightened up my morning because I was like, geez, no, that was great. I actually, you know, I had, I had, we had a positive impact on that family, which is great. And you'd hope that they would go on and maybe say to somebody else and it might have a little bit of a ripple effect. But yes, I agree with you. Like our communication on a wider scale isn't great. But if we could have more of the one-to-one meaningful conversations, then we'd certainly make progress. But how can we speak to everybody? That's the thing. That's, a, that's probably the, the struggle. I, I suppose from little acorns, great oak trees grow in lots of ways. And I think the, um, yeah, I mean, if we look at, at our consumer now, generally, generationally, they're removed from agriculture much more so than before. I, like when I was growing up in the, in the 80s, um, the majority of Irish people were at, at most a generation removed from a farm. And there was a there was an enormous link with the local agricultural community where we're invested in it. On my road, there's four four miles of road and 24 dairies, and now there's none. So yeah. it's it, 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 it's entirely different. But but if you look at the communication piece, and I saw it happen in Scandinavia, where the local schools as part of the curriculum, they must visit the local farms. The local farms set up uh, picnics and, and feeding calves and all that kind of thing. And the schools have to go out there. They all put on their dungarees and their wellies, and they have to go. It, it's, it's part of the educational uh, piece. Is, is there merit, Gillian, in getting in that way if we got the community behind us rather than us shouting ourselves that if the community experienced the positivity of farming, that Ireland could speak better of farming without being accused of greenwashing? Yes, I no, I agree with you there. It's, it's that um, it's probably how farmers are often portrayed in the media. Oftentimes it's around, you know, it's, it's the complaining farmer, it's the older farmer, it's the, you know, it's the poor mouthing that people call it. And you kind of get tired with that brush, you know, and, and, and when you think about it, farmers are, are often complaining because being a primary producer isn't easy. Mm. And like that, you know, that, that's like, 
you talk to any primary producer, whether it's in tillage or dairy or beef or sheep, or whatever, being a primary producer is, is oftentimes very challenging. And, you know, the idea of bringing kids onto a farm and, and seeing the positive sides of it, like Sheenie, it's, it's brilliant because when we had the kids and their parents on the farm, the kids that got the, the opportunity to, or who wanted to, you know, to grab the, they, they had a, one of those milk feeders, the ones that you can, you can hold, they were feeding the calf with that, with milk and the, the calf was a, it was, was maybe nearly a three month old calf or something. It was one of these late calves <laughs> that, you, <laughs> that would have drank a, any amount of milk that you put in front of it. But they were so like, they lit up, the kids were delighted. And just that little bit of engagement, you could see that it lit a spark in them, that link to nature, that link to animals. And, you know, it, it's probably, again, if you could have schools uh, engaging with primary producers, and it doesn't have to be dairy farmers, it could be any, any type of primary producer, I think it would have a, have a much better effect in the long run because, you know, people, again, it's back to the value of food. Food is, you know, where's the price of milk over the last 20 years? It hasn't really moved if you go into your shops. And, and the value we put on, you know, if I've, I visit our local orchard here and I get a couple of boxes of, of apples on a weekly basis. And, and I love chatting to the, to the guys there because I know nothing about growing, growing fruit. And they're telling me about, you know, what they have to do over the year to, to, to grow apples. And I'm just, I'm nearly blown away by it. And I, I go into the supermarket and I see a bag of apples for like two euro. And I think, geez, Louise, if anyone knew the effort it took to get those apples grown and in that bag, you should be paying a whole lot more for it. And it's the same for, you could say the same for any, any products that's grown here, whether it's, you know, whether it's beef or, or lamb or dairy or, you know, whatever, or any, any type of vegetable. So if at a, at a young age that people could see the hard work and the effort that goes into to producing food and that they would maybe have some sort of a value on it or some sort of link to it, I think it would, it would probably be a great thing in general. Yeah, I, we've probably got very, very used to cheap food and, and food available to us at all times without actually ever really thinking about the um, the effort and the technical skill involved in producing that. Um, I was in, interested when you were first saying about how you get on at farming and you didn't know anything about farming and you're very well-educated people, but the, the technical knowledge to farm well is often underestimated. Is that a fair point, Gillian? That we underestimate oh, how much yeah. how much effort and how much skill has to be in this. That the, that that traditional view of the farmer as almost and dare I say it that, that there's there's almost an ignorant stereotype put on the farmer in the countryside. It's 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 like uh, it's like the country yokel almost, and there is that sort of view of <laughs> the view of it. And we're we're struggling maybe a little bit to to break the bonds of that, or or is that um. You know, are we, or are we feeding into that stereotype with the way we approach our politics around farming and so on? We, that we do underestimate the actual ability of our primary producer, including fishermen, including, you know, people who are involved, forestry, people who are involved in those key primary industries. Yeah, I know you're right. The, it's, I think it's what they call unskilled labor is actually highly skilled labor. <laughs> mm. Because you try and get somebody to work on a farm in the springtime and to do what is, you know, whether it's calf rearing or to milk, milk cows, that involves a training period. It's not like you can just say, you just go in there and milk the cow, those cows. And, and, and to mm. get somebody to train them up in that skill is, you know, it, it doesn't take, it's not something you can do in an hour or two. So, yeah, the skills and the skill sets involved on farms across the country are vastly underestimated. And in the long run, I think that a huge challenge will be around labour on farms because 
if you look at now, uh, we have this housing crisis coming and we're you know, coming down the tracks. And we're back to cranes in the skies and all the in all the big cities and uh, you know all you can see in the horizon for the next for the coming five to ten years there's going to be a lot of building construction going on and where have where did all the, the people who are involved in construction where did some of them end up after with say 2009 2010 many of them came back to working on farms you know they left their their trade jobs ended up maybe working in through agriculture leaf milking or whatever working on farms and that lure now, when, when you have construction jobs that are really well paid, uh, that are Monday to Friday or Monday to Saturday, uh, I mean, that's a huge attraction to people who are now maybe might still be working on farms or, you know, down the line, the lure of moving from a farm where given the springtime, you could be working around the clock or you'd definitely be working Saturdays and Sundays. You know, how are we going to, to attract people and retain staff on farms that have expanded in the last couple of years? I think that'll be really, really challenging in, in the next five years. Yeah, it's, it's interesting that we've moved in Ireland from, I remember the good old days of the farm apprenticeship scheme, where there was a pathway to, to, to farming, working, farming management, farm labour as such. And it seems that that pathway, there isn't a constructive pathway to encourage people towards a career or a life in farming. And there's almost an assumption that, you know, you can throw someone into milk and power and they can magically milk cows, which many times is not, you know, it's not the case. Looking at that farm in the future, looking at yourselves, yourself and Neil and your farm, and, and, and I know you have a unique system, you're milking once a day and so on. But looking at your farm 10 years time, the pressure that's on us on, under, under the climate agenda, the emissions agenda, the nitrate agenda, the labor agenda. What do you see? What, where's your positivity coming from, Gillian? Um, well, you know, as I was saying there, just to, to focus on the once a day thing for us, when we started out doing once a day in 2009, that was after, I mean, the main reason why we went to milking once a day was because my brother had passed away and we were very short in labour on our farm. So it was yeah. actually primarily a labour issue, while we were, the reason why we went once a day. And you know, over the years, we have kind of made that system work uh, for us and for our farm simply because we figured out that the, the nuts and bolts of, of once a day was around um, very good grassland management and grass utilization, um, excellent genetics in the cows, because genetics was key to it. And then making sure that you had a, a good, strong handle on, on your costs. And once you worked that out, then once a day was a very profitable system. And I think over the last year or two, we've had more people come to the farm because we've always had lots of people come to the farm around, um, you know, because we, we, we do something a little bit different. There's a lot of people coming because they see it maybe as a labor saving tool that they could use on their farm. And they want to make sure that they're doing it right when, you know, if they try and adopt it either for part of the year, you know, or e even full season on their own farms. But again, it's always in terms of it's generally in terms of, of reducing that labor requirement. Um, so I think, as you said, labor is going to be huge, but the, over the next five or 10 years, yes, the environment will be massive. Um, like, I think it's going to be the, the biggest challenge that we have coming towards us. And I see two reasons for that. One, firstly, would be in the previous 30 years, we have seen a, a threefold increase in the number of, um, we say, in the number of extreme weather events that have occurred globally. And, you know, if in Ireland, you know, although we have quite a mild and a temperate climate, you know, in the last five or six years, we can you can name the big ones. You've got Ophelia, the beast, as we called it. And we had the drought of, of 18. And um, 
you know, what does what does climate change look for, or what does it mean for us in agriculture? Well, it probably means that, you know, this increase in weather extremes, weather extremes put an incredible amount of stress on any farm. Um, like in terms of, of the storm like Ophelia, there was farms that went without electricity for seven to 10 days. There was, you know, in the terms of, of the, the snow event that occurred, there was farms that, you know, maybe there was a lot of expansion on farms and, and the importance of having infrastructure and a cubicle per cow became very, you know, that was real priority stuff there. And then for the, for the drought, I guess what we see was, you know, definitely needed personal resilience for that. And, and again, looking at the, the, the variety and the, the type of, of um, in terms of, of, of the grass varieties that are, that are being grown, maybe, maybe we need to look at, at, at maybe more diverse pastures for farms that are very, very drought prone. You know, I think, I think that, that we need to be very, um, that, that'll be a huge challenge for us the climate change aspect for agriculture, again, putting more stresses on, onto farm systems. And one thing, I, d- I don't think that anyone is, you know, it speaks about it enough, but when people talk about limiting temperature rises to 1.5 degrees, you know, what, what uh, it doesn't sound like a lot. But if you look at Ireland and you have, like our, our average winter temperature is about five degrees and our average summer temperature is about maybe 14 or 15 degrees. Um, all of our weather, like the vast majority of weather happens between between five and 15 degrees. And that's a, 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 what you'd call, you know, within a curve, all of that, you know, that big part of the curve, the arc of the curve, that's where the vast majority of the weather is occurring. So basically in a, in a nine or 10 degree um, spread. And um, on either end of the curve, then we have the colder temperatures of the, of the winter and the, we move the more hotter temperatures of the summer. But if we get a, an increase in temperature um, of, we say, one and a half to two degrees, then all that average weather that we're seeing within that nine or 10 degree spread, everything moves. All those averages move towards the right, towards that warmer side. And that means if your whole curve moves that way, you're going to take in now your, the edge of your curve, which was extremes, now becomes part of the norm. So we're going to see a whole lot more of these, um, you know, these drier, more drought you know, longer, longer dry spells type of, of weather in that side of the curve. So, you know, that, that will impact farming in a, in a very serious way. If on the bigger sense of uh, more global sense, farmers really should engage in, in the environmental stuff. But I think we nearly, you know, the farmer of the future will have to have such a high level of, of uh, knowledge and understanding of all these environmental things that, uh, you know, <laughs> you nearly want to have a a PhD in, in environmental science to be farming in in, uh, in a couple of years. But again, as I said, I'm very positive about it. Yeah, I think it's I, something I, that we can all meet. First of all, I think you, you've explained that really well. I, I, I think because a lot of people think the concept of a degree or degree and a half is is insignificant and therefore like what can drive, can drive that change. And I, I remember my dad would always associate uh, if we got the autumn between the autumn equinox and the spring equinox was our weather. That, that was when everything, you got your equinoctial storms on either side of that. And effectively, that's, that's your weather period. And if you stretch, it, and, and, and that was his view of looking out the window, right? So it's, it's not based on the science as such. But it, 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 if we stretch this, and as you say, we shift the curve, it, it's, a, it's a real nice explanation for reaching that small number of extremes, but hitting them on a more frequent basis, um, mm-hmm. which I think is very important. I think some farmers... And maybe this is the, this is the uh, you've mentioned a few times about resilience and support. 
we're entering we're entering into this era where we need to know more. We're technically more challenged. We're challenged by regulation and so on. Uh, and, and that farmer of the future with the pressures on them, where is the support going to come from? How is that going to work? How's our community going to help us? What do you think we're going to need as personal ammunition to get through this? What works for you right now? What has worked for you in, in, in your whole process of entering farming? Um, I guess in terms of uh, when we were, when we started out farming, our influence, um, you know, it, what was was from my own father. So, like, you know, as I said, we, we knew nothing and he was teaching us everything, himself and, and our, our local advisor. And thankfully, my father was um, really, he, like, he's a really progressive father, a farmer, and his father before him was very, very progressive. So he was open to trying anything and, and, and give us that attitude to farming that, you know, if you want to try something, just give it a go. What's the worst that can happen? And again, you know, when things were tough, what he'd always say to us was, you can actually only do your best. So I guess it, because he's had a lifetime in farming, he's seen, he's seen the highs and the lows. And, you know, he'd, he'd hopefully tell us about it. But, you know, as long as it was outside the door, then you could always deal with it. Um, because you know, farming can be challenging and, and farming can be very, very stressful. Uh, for me, as we've gone through the, you know, that very steep learning curve in the beginning about learning all about farming, and we, you know, we've, we've gotten come to terms with what we do um, and what works here on our farm and within our farm system. I guess the more we've gotten more involved with discussion groups and, and, and with other farmers, and I'm involved, actually, I'm involved in three discussion groups. I love being involved in discussion groups. I love that conversations those quiet conversations that go on when you're walking from one place in a farm to another and you know you can you can you can really you know in a good group there's there's a great space created just to voice what you're feeling or to voice the, the struggles or challenges you're coming with and I think that that we need to it's it's really important for farmers to foster that network around them because being on your own and being in isolation oh it can be a lonely place um and you know I I definitely I'm very thankful that on the farm here that if you, you know, if things are stressful or if, if you're considering, to, you know, lots of things are in balls are in the air, at least I can, you know, myself and Neil and my father, we could sit down at the table over a cup of tea and we could just, you know, thrash out what might or may not, might not work in coming, in, in coming up with solutions. And that's great because you've got three heads um, chatting about things and always after that cup of tea, you're like, right, there's a plan made there and we can move on from that. And even if that plan doesn't work, we can come back the next day and have yet another cup of tea and come up with plan B or plan C. And that's that's, you know, that network and that, that the fact that we have that little group here in our farm is wonderful. And, I, and again, I would always encourage farmers that network of people around you in the future and, and, and maybe fostering or developing that either whether it's through a discussion group or through whatever a local, some sort of local group that you get involved with, because. In a group, there's lots of a group of people can bring a lot of expertise. They can bring a lot of knowledge or experience and learning from each other. I think farmers, the greatest level of, of learning on farms comes from learning from other farmers. You know, sometimes you figure out that you're walking along and you think you're doing something novel and great on your own farm. And then you realize that the farmer you're chatting to beside you has done it 10 years ago and that they have you know, a huge body of knowledge about it. And you think this is wonderful. And you head off home and you're full of full of excitement and and uh, <laughs> at trying something that someone has had a success with so that network um of support will be key in the in the coming years for farmers and i you know I, I encourage every farmer to try and get involved or try and create their own network so i think it's very good advice i think it can be a real challenge for farmers if they if they become 
isolated. Uh, we, we've spoken on some, some of these other other podcasts about individuals, you know, the isolation within countryside work, isolation and these things, which can be really, really detrimental to you and, and to find those, those correct outlets. I think we're in a real unique time. There is that speed of change. There is that pressure. There is that language. I often find it intriguing when I'm listening to the news or uh, the amount of language that's used around farming and acronyms, you know, CAP and uh, low emission, less low emission slurry spreading and all these things <laughs> are fired at people. And uh, we're almost, um, it's almost accepted that we understand everything first time around. I think that's a real, I think that's a challenge. And maybe it's a challenge for, again, the way we communicate with, with people about farming. We assume an awful lot. Is, is, is that something, is that something you see? Is that, is, you know, that, that assumption that we all know and we all should be right and we all should be perfect? Yeah, I mean, that, that, that assumption is there. And as you said, all those acronyms being thrown at you. And, and uh, even yesterday, I found myself, I said, you know, there's been so much happening in the last week, especially around CAP. I said, you know, somebody, I was chatting to somebody about it and they said, I said to him, listen, I am not up to speed with, with these new CAP uh, schemes or measures or anything. I said, I'm going to have to check in with, with some sort of publication to try and um, fill that, that, uh, that knowledge gap that I have at the minute. And yeah, the, the assumption that everybody is up to speed with these things is there but like it's it's very hard to keep when when things are changing so quickly it's very hard to keep abreast of 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 all of these changes um yeah being you know because we have such access with our phones now to the likes of you know facebook's for twitter or online articles and things like that you know yes you're you're somewhat more connected but you need you need near to have um <laughs> a secretary or, or somebody to try and keep you up to speed with with changes when they're happening so quickly um, so look, I, I think that it's hard to keep on top of everything, but you can only do your best. And and, and for me, probably in, in terms of of learning knowledge, I, I would say that every there's no bit of, of knowledge that could ever, you know, or, or course, any course or certificate or even a, a day course in learning how to use a computer. I think that every little bit of knowledge is useful and every bit of learning is useful. Um, this education learning is empowering. It gives us the ability to kind of stand on our own two feet and to explain why we're doing something on a farm um, and and you know I, I year, a number of years back I went and did that dairy herd health cert through UCD and the reason why I did it was not to make me a better vet but actually to make me a better farmer um, because after after being a farmer for you know I'd been a farmer a full-time farmer for five or six years at that stage and uh, to learn the concepts of dairy herd health through the lens of being a farmer was a totally different experience mm. you know people would say well you should know all that stuff already because you're a vet but when you learn things um, from a different perspective, so from the farmer's perspective, you realize, you know, the practical steps are involved in implementing animal health measures on, on your farm are very different to what you'd read in a book as a vet. And uh, that was a real, that was brilliant. I found it excellent. And it certainly did make me a better farmer after, after doing it. So, um, yeah, I would, I, would, I would encourage the learning, but maybe to, as much as possible, but maybe to cut out the, the fuzz and the, the noise and the outside uh, that, that can be very distracting. So summing up some of the things you said, Gillian, and there's a strong thread to your, to your discussion that education, knowledge, because you're very knowledge-centered, uh, get the knowledge, understand it. And that's not easy for everybody. And often we need unique teachers or we need unique support to help us with that. Uh, you know, the, the idea of your system being fit for purpose that you know what mm -hmm. you know what your system is, is, is it's very fit for purpose there. 
and even that again advancing into that communication piece maybe we really need to revisit some of our communication how we present ourselves to the wider public and how we present the industry i think could have a big influence on in how that industry is viewed um real positive things i think a positive view of the future yes we have a huge amount of change there's a lot happening incredibly quickly but there is a positive future future there for us Gillian, it's it's been a real um it's been a, a pleasure talking to you about this i promise you that um i i've always admired your perspective on it on a very very final note anyone or people who's influenced you anything that you've read that's influenced you just for maybe even a starting point for people who might be listening to this is there any gem that you'd say to them okay listen to this talk to this person um well when we started farmers i said my our main influencer was was my my father but that was simply because he was um he was a progressive farmer and he was here beside us and he was giving us great support and um as we moved through things, the areas that we were interested in, I guess it changed because initially we were trying to learn a lot about once a day. So we were looking to people like um, even our local farm advisor. We were very fortunate that he had done lots of, of work around once a day. And then we were looking to get in touch with wonderful people that have um, like Colin Holmes, Professor Colin Holmes over in New Zealand, who had done a huge body of work on once a day and was a, was a wonderful advocate for it. Uh, but he, he passed away a number of years ago. Um, and then as we moved, you know, to, more towards like of late, the things that I'm, you know, that I'm reading, I have a real interest in, in soil health um, and um, things that I've been reading, you know, might seem a little bit maybe off centre or, or a little bit left field, like things that, you know, authors such as Steve Gay Brown or uh, James Rebanks and, uh, um, and Nicole Masters. And that's just basically to, to get a, better, a greater understanding of soil biology and how we can how we can um, maybe make our soils more resilient but whatever you know whatever area of interest you have generally my first port of call is to is to ring somebody uh, and and visit a farm and have a chat with the farmer who's doing it and I would say that to anyone who's not in agriculture that if you want to learn something about it then go to someone who's doing it and doing it well and after that then you can find your book material but you know, visiting someone in person and seeing what they're doing is is probably the best way to learn anything. So don't ignore the the inherited, incremented wisdom of farmers. Go and That's see and, and and put your hands in the wounds. And and maybe as we move forward, we can ask the wider community if we get more of the wider community to stand in the farmer's shoes, we may be able to to move this path forward together as against being polar opposites on you know on some of the issues Gillian as always a pleasure and best of luck to you and Neil and your family farming into the future brilliant thanks Martin really appreciate it thank you for listening to the farming fix podcast if you enjoyed it please leave a review rate us and don't forget to subscribe thanks very much